Good morning. Let's stand together, if you would, listen to these words from the psalmist, Psalm 66, as we enter into worship. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All of creation will worship you. And they sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Let's do just that this morning. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is my help and salvation. All ye who hear now to His temple draw near, praise Him in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, ye so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how my desires there have been, granted in what he ordaineth? Praise to Thank you very much. Remain standing, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer and seek his face. We welcome you to the last chapel of this school year. Now we enter into the Valley of Despond for the whole summer when we don't have uh, chapel. And uh, so I uh, just wonder how many of you here will be graduating uh, this time. Let me see your hands. All right. Quad number. We uh, are grateful for you, and I hope you got 1,500 books because it'd be a shame to be called back at the end. But in any event, we are delighted that uh, this group, it's a large graduating class, and uh, we'll have a great service. I want you to be praying about one thing particularly. There are three occasions in your life when you will have more people who are lost than any other time. The first one is at funerals, because everybody that knows the deceased has to come 
whether he is into serving the Lord or not. So they are there, and uh, you have a shot at them. The second one is at a marriage ceremony. Everybody feels sorry for the couple, and so they have to come, regardless of whether they have any religious disposition or not. The third time is at graduation. Now, preacher, if you don't give the gospel and give some kind of an invitation at every one of those, may the siphonophtery of ten myriads of dromedaries infest your axillae. Go home, work on that. You'll find out what it means. It is an ancient Arab curse, and uh, it will be your lot in life if you don't give an invitation, give an opportunity for them to come to know the Lord. So I want you to be praying. There'll be a lot of lost folks here uh, on that day in graduation. You pray for me as I present the gospel and for them as they hear. Okay, let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, how we thank you today for this wonderful day. We thank you for the way in which you have consistently visited our chapel this year. And we have felt your presence, and many of us have made decisions that we needed to make, and all of us, Lord, have felt the presence of God in such a way that we are different people as a result of it. We pray today that you would bless our preacher. We pray that the anointing of God might rest upon him and he might simply sense the presence of the power of God as he preaches. And Lord, as we look forward to the coming graduation day and we know how many lost folks will be here, we pray that you would bring them to the graduation service and that they might experience the joy and the happiness of seeing a loved one uh, who has completed all of the work get his degree, and we pray that that may be the case, but Lord, more, we pray that those who do not know you may come to know you on that occasion. And so, Lord, we just uh, commit our time to you today, and we ask your special blessings upon this service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And thank you, and you may be seated. And uh, we have a wonderful come to pass today, uh, and uh, that is that we are going to be graduating a number of uh, women from our certificate program. So Dr. Terry Stovall, where are you? Would you come up here, please? And uh, I want you to uh, present these women who have uh, carefully worked and, and completed the certificate, and we're going to ask them to come here. And let's see, could you stand up, please, Dr. Stovall? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You're not much taller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get many chances, so. Southwestern Seminary is committed to providing theological education for women at all levels of study, including doctoral study, master's and baccalaureate concentrations, as well as the certificate level. Today, we recognize those who have completed the certificate level of study. So seminary studies for student wives certificates prepare student wives to be prayerful and passionate partners with their husbands in ministry. Additionally, we have specific ministry-focused certificates in women's ministry, biblical studies, and childhood and weekday education to prepare those who are serving in the local church. We want to say a special thank you to the family and friends who have encouraged these women to continue to equip themselves to best be used by God wherever he chooses to use them. As I call each name, friends and family members are invited to stand. I do ask that we refrain from applause until the end and we'll all join together to congratulate them. 
earning the leadership certificate in women's ministry, Gloria Jean Irving, Vida W. McKinney. Earning the Seminary Studies for Student Wives Certificate, Stephanie Grace Frankiewicz, Jacqueline Garcia, and Amanda Lee Grant. Earning the Advanced Seminary Studies for Student Wives Certificate, Jisoo Kim. Earning the Leadership Certificate in Childhood and Weekday Education, Molly K. Church. And earning the Certificate in Biblical Studies, the Biblical Studies Track, Megan Finley. Will you join me in congratulating these ladies on their accomplishment? so very, very grateful for these ladies who have, uh, have uh, worked hard to uh, keep themselves uh, abreast of what's going on in the theological and church world, and God will use them in a very special way in that regard. Now, today is our student day in chapel, and in just a moment, uh, Brother Justin Williams, who is a 17th uh, uh, semester student in the MDiv program is going to come and uh, read our scripture today as we continue reading in the book of Haggai. And uh, so he will read our scripture and then we're going to sing one more time and then uh, DJ Bulls is going to come and sing for us at that time. And then our message today will be done by our student preacher. Uh, Brother Todd Tucker, his wife Crystal is here. Where are you, Crystal? There you are. Lift your hand high so they can see you. Yes, glad to have you here today. And um, um, Brother Todd Tucker has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Clear Creek Baptist College, Pineville, Kentucky, and is graduating with his Advanced Masters of Divinity degree uh, with a concentration in expository preaching and pastoral ministry. And he serves, I think, as outreach minister at Ridgedale Baptist Church. We're glad to have him today. Now, as you know, uh, uh, for reasons that I can't figure out, uh, student preachers are always a little nervous uh, when they uh, come to this point. I asked him if he were a little bit nervous, and just before he dropped the water glass in the in the room up there, he said yes. But uh, uh, he didn't do that seriously. But do pray for him because uh, it's it's a little you're pretty intimidating group, really, when it gets right down to it. I'm even frightened. Uh, I have professors that get up and have no reverence toward me and say things like what you said. So, um, it's an intimidating assignment, but uh, a gracious one, and I know you'll pray for Todd as he comes and listen to him with open heart and mind. See what God says to you today and what he says to me. All right, so Justin Williams, come and read God's Word for us. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The book of Haggai, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all of the people in the land. Take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I have made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches the bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And priests answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands. And what they do offer is un- there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap and of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with a blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, considered, is seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones and the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and the riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of the Sheatil, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Heights of love, what depths of peace 
be seated if you would, please. unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading home.
Well, good morning, everyone. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Before we look at the text, I just want to say a few words. I found out about two months ago that I would be preaching in chapel. Now, I've, I've been nervous prior to preaching before, but I've never been nervous for two months before <laughs> preaching. I think they tell you that early because they want to see how long you can have an anxiety attack for. But in all seriousness, it's an incredible honor to be up here preaching the word in the chapel of the seminary whose very slogan is preach the word, reach the world. And so it's an incredible honor. Thank you, Dr. Patterson, for this opportunity. Also, thank you to the, the preaching faculty for selecting me for this. It truly is an honor. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 will be in verses 18 through 25. William Borden was born in 1887. Now, if that name Borden sounds familiar to you, it's because we see it all the time. Anytime we go to the grocery store to buy cheese or milk or some kind of dairy product, that name Borden is there. You see, William Borden was born into the family that started the Borden Dairy Company. So you could say he was born with a, a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. He was to be the heir of the company. Well, by God's grace, Borden's mother was a Christian, and through her witness, Borden became a Christian at a young age. Well, after high school, he was given the trip of a lifetime. He was able to travel around the world. He went to Asia, to the Middle East, to Europe. And on his travels, as he began to see all the different people of the world, he became burdened by what he saw. And so he determined that he would become a missionary. In fact, while he was still on his trip, he wrote home and he told his parents that he was giving up his life to become a missionary. One of his friends told him that he was throwing himself away as a missionary. Well, upon his return to America, he got a bachelor's degree and then he went on to Princeton Seminary. Following that, he boarded a boat to go to China. He had determined to minister to this certain Muslim group of people that were in China. But because of the language barrier, he had to first stop in Egypt to learn the language. However, while in Egypt, he developed a bad case of meningitis and died before he ever got to Egypt. But as illustrated by the statement by his friend, some people were opposed to him becoming a missionary. His dad was opposed to him becoming a missionary because he did not want him to leave. He wanted him to take over the company. However, in spite of the opposition, there are three phrases that William Borden wrote in his Bible at three different points in his life that really characterize this man of faith. Those three phrases are no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Now, I cannot relate to the wealth that Borden had, but I can relate to people not understanding why I would want to follow the Lord. When I became a Christian, there were certain people in my life that did not understand why I would want to follow the Lord. They were living a lifestyle that was contrary to Christianity, so I, could, I had to distance myself from them. And it's quite obvious that they don't understand the impact of the gospel on someone's life. But no matter what others think of me, at the end of my life, I want to be able to say that I lived with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. What about you? Will you be able to look back and say that you lived with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets because of your service to Christ? Now, with that in mind, the truth is, if we follow Christ, we are going to face opposition, just like William Borden did. It could come from our jobs, it could come from our family, our friends, it could come from anywhere. And so what I want you to understand as we look at this text is that because of the divisive nature of the cross, prepare yourself to face opposition by focusing on Christ crucified. Now, as we look at this text, verse 18 is really the main thought of this text. Verses 19 through 25 are, are further clarification about verse 18. 
Also, from a contextual standpoint, we need to understand what Paul was saying prior to this. Now, we know Paul wrote this letter to the church that was in Corinth. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that it was a very immoral city. Not only was there the worship of false gods, there was also a lot of prostitution in the city as well. And unfortunately, some of this immorality had spilled over into the church, which was causing the church to have a lot of issues. And the first issue we see that they were having is in verses 10 through 17. And what they were doing is they were dividing up into different groups. In verse 12, it says, some were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And so they were claiming to be in different groups. And Paul is saying there's this lack of unity in the church at Corinth. He then goes on to describe how Christ is not divided and how they were not baptized into Paul's name, or for that matter, anybody else's name other than Christ. And then Paul tells what his purpose was. Look at verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And so Paul's calling was to preach the gospel. He wasn't called to go around baptizing people, but to preach the gospel. And he adds to that that he was not to do so with wisdom of words. In other words, the gospel was not dependent on his eloquent speech. And so he says he avoided speaking in any way that would take away from the message of the gospel. Now, with that in mind, we go into our passage, which deals with different perceptions of the gospel. And as we look at this, I want you to understand three different things. First of all, the gospel demands a decision. Look at verse 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so he first says that the, the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Notice that he says the message of the cross. He doesn't mention the resurrection at this point, though that was definitely what Paul was preaching. If you flip through 1 Corinthians, you get to chapter 15, you see that Paul was clearly preaching the resurrection. But instead, what he says, it is the message of the cross that is foolishness to those that are perishing. In other words, it is the account of the Son of God dying on the cross for our sins that is foolishness to the unbeliever. And he also says that those people who believe it to be foolishness are perishing. Now, it's interesting that in the Greek, the word for perishing here in verse 18 is the same word in verse 19 for the word destroy. And so it's as if Paul is saying those people who believe the gospel to be foolishness are basically being destroyed. Though that destruction will be an eternal destruction. It will never cease. And so Paul is not saying something here that is surprising. We see evidence of this all the time. Anytime we go out to share the gospel with people, there will be those that will think our message is foolishness. They will think that we are a fool for believing what we do. When somebody decides to go halfway across the world and share the gospel with the lost and dying world, the outside world looks at him and says that he's a fool for giving up his life of comfort and ease here in America. And why is the gospel foolishness to those who are perishing, to unbelievers? Well, think about it. Try to think about it from the mind of an unbeliever rather than your Christian mind. When you go to someone to tell them the gospel, you're telling them that they need to acknowledge that they are a sinner, that they need to repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and they need to believe in the Son of God who came from heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, willingly allowed himself to be tortured and nailed to a cross, died on that cross, was buried, and three days later, by the power of God, was resurrected. Now, to the unbeliever... That probably sounds like foolishness. 
outside of the Holy Spirit's conviction, that is. And that's completely understandable. I mean, people are not born of virgins. People don't live sinless lives. People who died on a cross were criminals. They weren't dying for someone else. And so from an unbelieving perspective, it probably sounds like foolishness. But you see, that foolishness is also very powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the gospel is so powerful, it doesn't need our eloquent words because it is enough. And so Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But notice the contrast. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That is how great the message of the cross is. It might sound like foolishness to some, but to to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Only God could come up with a plan to save the world by sending his very son to die on a cross for our sins. God's power is on display in the work of the cross. And the message of the cross is effective to save anyone who comes to Jesus by faith. Now that is great power. And so verse 18 shows us that the gospel demands a decision. Either we can believe it to be foolishness and we can perish as a result of it. Or we can believe it to be the truth and we can experience experience the power of God. We can be saved. The second thing I want you to understand is is that the gospel requires proclamation. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so to further solidify his argument, Paul contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And he first quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 14. Now in Isaiah 29, Isaiah is speaking woes to Jerusalem and he's talking about their disobedience. And in verse 13 and 14, he writes, therefore the Lord said, and as much as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. And so he's saying that people offer up lip service, people trust in the commandment of men, people trust in their own wisdom, and yet none of it is good enough. Man's wisdom will get him nowhere in his pursuit of God or the lack thereof. And so he asks some rhetorical questions. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? He's probably thinking about those professional wise people, those that would be in positions we would consider esteemed. These would be the intelligent people. And yet Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so how is the wisdom of this world made foolish? Because man's wisdom can do nothing to bring him closer to God. Man's wisdom cannot save a person. And so while there's nothing necessarily wrong with being wise in this world, there is a problem when we begin to trust in our own wisdom rather than in the wisdom of God. Eventually, everyone who has spent their lives trusting in their own wisdom will see that they not only wasted their lives, but they destroyed their very soul in the process. Sure, there are things that we can learn in this world, but if we are trusting in those things rather than in Christ, then we are bringing a destruction to our souls. 
Now he continues the same thought. Look at verse 21. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so again, man's wisdom cannot lead a person to know God. And this is how great God's wisdom is. He determined in his wisdom that no one through human wisdom could know him. Instead, he provided a different way. He provided a way that sounds like foolishness to the world. What is that way? The proclamation of the cross. The only way for people to be saved is for them to believe in the very thing that sounds like foolishness to the world. They must believe in the proclamation of the cross, the gospel message. No one has ever, no one will ever come to faith in Christ through man's wisdom. It is only through the gospel that someone can come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Therefore, the gospel requires proclamation. If we truly believe Jesus when he said that he is the only way to the Father, then we will believe as well that the gospel must be proclaimed. Now, because of this of the message of the cross, it caused issues for, for both Jews and Greeks. And so that leads us to the third point. The gospel creates division. Now look at verses 22 and tw through 25. He says, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. First of all, Paul says that the Jews asked for signs. We saw this in the life of Jesus. Some of the Pharisees came to him, asking him for a sign, and he said, the only sign that I will give you is the sign of Jonah. Well, why do they want a sign? Well, if you look, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that many times when God was doing something, there was often a sign to accompany it. Think about Moses when he led the people out of Egypt. Think about the Passover, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the fire that guided them by night and the smoke that guided them by day. And so from, an, from a Jewish perspective, when God was doing something, they expected a sign. And yet Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which was to the Jews a stumbling block. Well, why was it a stumbling block? Because it did not fit with what they thought should happen. You see, they wanted a Messiah that would come in great power and great authority, performing many signs and wonders. And though Jesus did perform many wonders, they rejected it all because he did not fit the mold of what they thought he should be. And so the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. And unfortunately, that remains the case for many Jewish people today. There are those who do believe Jesus is the Messiah, but there are many Orthodox Jews who simply do not. Now, another group he mentions is the Greeks. Paul says that the Greeks seek after wisdom. We know that to be the case because of all the philosophers that were in Greece. It was a place where wisdom was basically a god. Think about people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. These were very wise individuals, but they were wise with the wisdom of the world. And so when Paul and others came preaching the message of a crucified Christ, it probably sounded like foolishness to them. It didn't make any sense in their minds. I mean, how could a man that was crucified be the savior of the world? That's foolishness. And again, think about it. What is the cross a symbol of? It's the symbol of judgment. The person that was there 
was there because he had committed a crime, had been judged to be guilty, was being executed for his crimes. How could someone like that save another person? The famous Roman philosopher Cicero, who lived about 100 years before Christ, said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Now, he's writing from a Roman perspective, but I would imagine the same thoughts were in the minds of the Greeks. Obviously, the cross did not paint a good picture in their minds. It wasn't something that they wanted to think about. And that is completely understandable. I mean, does anybody go around thinking about lethal injection every day? Of course not. It's the symbol of death. That's not something that we want to think about. And so for Paul and others to proclaim a crucified Christ would be foolishness to the Greeks, and it would be a stumbling block to the Jews. But again, he gives us another contrast. Notice the contrast in verse 24. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The unbeliever cannot understand the message of the cross in his own wisdom, but there is a totally different perspective for those who are called. Now, this relates back to verse 21 when it says those who believe. It is those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus that show that they are one of these called individuals. And so then to us who are saved, we understand that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. The very thing that the world sees as foolishness is, in fact, the power and wisdom of God. That just shows how great God's wisdom is. Only God could come up with a plan to redeem man by using a means that man views as foolishness. And why would God choose such a method? Well, there's probably many answers that we could give to that question, but perhaps with this, with this passage in mind, Maybe God chose this method because it shows that all of man's efforts to reach him fall short. And so he chose a cross, the very symbol of shame, rejection, weakness, suffering. No man would ever choose such a method. And so God in his wisdom and in his power chose a cross. He sent his son to die for us on, his, on a cross. In his wisdom, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that we can never get to him on our own, and so he did it for us. There has to be blood to cover our sin. And so he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. In fact, Paul finishes this section by saying that because the foolishness of, of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so no matter how great the wisdom of man is, no matter how great the power of man is, they do not compare to the foolishness and the weakness of God. Now, obviously, there is no foolishness or weakness in God. And so what is Paul saying? Well, basically, he's saying that the very thing that God used to save the world, the method that man views as foolish and weak, is actually wiser and more powerful than anything that man could produce. And so don't think that God is somehow foolish or weak. That is not what Paul is saying. Instead, he's simply showing the difference between God and man and how weak man truly is. And so as we have seen, the gospel demands a decision. It requires proclamation, and it creates division. Now, earlier I said the main thing I want you to understand is that because of the divisive nature of the cross, prepare yourself to face opposition by focusing on Christ crucified. The truth is that, as we have seen, 
the world believes the gospel to be foolishness. And because of that, they're going to be opposed to us who believe it to be the truth. Alvin Reed tells the story of a man named Semmelweis. Semmelweis was born in 1818. In his day, one in every six women died in childbirth. Now his desire to know the reason for this high death rate led him to become a physician. And once he was a doctor, he discovered that these women were dying from something called childbed fever. And so studying the way that the doctors operated in his day, he discovered something that we would consider absolutely appalling today. You see, when the doctors would first begin their shift, they would often go to the morgue to do autopsies. And because they did not understand germs and bacteria in those days, they would not wash their hands as they moved to the maternity ward. And so as they were delivering the babies, they were killing the mothers. Well, Simmelweis began to experiment with washing his hands. He also encouraged his colleagues to, to wash their hands in this chlorine solution. Well, immediately, as they began to do this, the death rate dropped from 1 in 6 to 1 in 50 among their patients. Unfortunately, not all his colleagues remained convinced. And so finally, at a convention, he spoke to his colleagues and he said, this fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it could be prevented. I have proven all I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I'm not asking you to do anything world-shaking. I'm asking you only to wash your hands. And they laughed in his face. They thought it was foolishness. Come on, are you serious? Are you telling me because I don't wash my hands, I'm killing these women? That's foolishness. And so this man had, had recognized the problem. He found the solution. He told it to his colleagues, and they thought that it was foolishness. But you see, some things that are truth are going to sound like foolishness to others. Take creation, for example. If you walked into any prominent university and you went into their science department up to one of their science professors and you explained to them how creation is true and evolution is false, they're probably going to laugh at you and call you a fool. But that doesn't make them right and you wrong. The same is the case with the message of the cross. The world is going to consider the gospel to be foolishness, and because of that, they're going to be opposed to us who believe it to be the truth. Does that mean that we should back down and surrender? Of course not. And so what kind of opposition do we face? Well, obviously, it's different here in America than it is in places like Saudi Arabia or China where you could literally be killed for your faith, though the way the times are looking, we might not be far from that. But we do face opposition in America. I'll just mention two real quickly. First of all, the opposition of rejection. And I'm sure many of us have experienced that before. When you become a believer and you trust in Christ, there are going to be people in your, in your life that will reject you because you choose to live a lifestyle that is contrary to the lifestyle that they want to live. And so they will reject you. And I'm sure you have experienced that in some way. Secondly, the opposition of immorality. And what I mean by that is that when we begin to speak against the rampant immorality in our culture, then the world is going to be opposed to us. You see, it is clear that in our society, those things that used to be unmentionable are now becoming the norm and Christianity is being pushed out. But you see, that is exactly what has to happen if a society is going to accept simple behavior as normal. You see, if Christianity tells the world that same-sex marriage is a sin, 
then according to the society, Christianity must be opposed. But in spite of the opposition, the truth is the Holy Spirit is still changing lives every single day. And so our job remains the same. We are to be sharing the gospel with the lost and dying world because we never know what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone's life. And so the first thing I want you to take from this is to never stop proclaiming the message of the cross. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, make it a priority in your life to share the gospel message with anyone you encounter. Now, you might be laughed at, you might be called a fool, but you will be honoring your Lord and Savior as you do so. And it's far better to honor the Lord than it is to worry about being called a fool. The second thing I want you to understand is about your own personal encouragement. See, we can focus on the cross by sharing it, but we can also focus on it as encouragement to ourselves and through that as encouragement to others. Unfortunately, I think that many people have this idea that, that once they become a Christian, they no longer need to think about the gospel. They need to, to move on to the deeper things of the word. And from a certain perspective, yes, that is true. But why would we ever want to stop thinking about the gospel? The gospel should characterize every aspect of our lives, our jobs, our recreation time. Everything we do should be rooted in the gospel, and we should constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. Remember, the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the wisdom of God. Why would you not want to think about that? And so remind yourself of how Christ delivered you from your sin. Remind yourself of Christ crucified for you. Remind yourself of the gospel. And if you will do that, you will see that your heart is encouraged and that no matter what opposition you might face, you can endure it in the strength of Christ and you can do it for his glory and for his honor. The message of the cross might be foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. Make sure it is never anything other than that to you. Don't ever let the gospel be a burden to you. It is the power and the wisdom of God. And so I want you to understand that if you stand for Christ, then opposition is going to come. You cannot get around that. The problem with Christianity in America today is that we are trying to avoid the opposition. Instead, what we need to do is we need to face the opposition head on with our feet firmly rooted in the gospel and our minds firmly fixed on the gospel and our hearts fully enraptured by the gospel. And again, if we will do that, we will experience the strength of Christ and we will be able to endure any opposition for his glory and for his honor. Real quickly, if you would, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, if you've studied anything from the life of Paul or you've read the book of Acts, you know that once Paul became a minister of the gospel, he faced a lot of opposition. He faced a lot of suffering. In fact, on one occasion, he was stoned and left for dead. He knew what it was like to suffer for the gospel. He knew what it was like to face opposition. But yet in spite of the opposition and, and, and the suffering, he had confidence. And he gives us a wonderful statement of confidence in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Read with me if you would in verse 8 through 12. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. 
For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul says, I suffered for the gospel. I suffer these things. I suffer as a preacher of the gospel. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that what I have committed unto him against that day. That is a beautiful statement of confidence. You know, we sing that song quite often in our churches, but do we really believe that? Is that our statement of confidence as well? That no matter what opposition or suffering we face for the gospel, we are able to say, I am unashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Let me close by asking you this. Would you rather look back on your life and see how you ran from the opposition, how you never stood firm in the gospel? Or would you rather look back and say that you lived as William Borden did, with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this message, and I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that as we go from here today, at the end of this semester, that we would go forth in your power and in your wisdom, trusting in you, and that no matter what opposition we might face, God, we can endure it in your strength, and we can do it for your glory. God, challenge us to trust you even more, to be faithful, to share the gospel, to be encouraged, and also to encourage others in the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to go to the cross for us so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I give you all the glory and the praise for everything that happened this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever I hear a young man like Todd Tucker preach the gospel and do so so flawlessly, I cannot help but think that uh, all the lugubrious prognostications about you millennials are far from the truth. Uh, and the future is secure, and I thank God for what the future will bring. And a uh, few funerals of us old heads will be actually a benefit to the church, and, and uh, then you'll have uh, wonderful young men like Todd preaching the gospel. It's such an encouragement to my soul, and thank you, Todd, for uh, preaching the Word of God and illuminating the text for us this morning. He'll be here at the close. Uh, for you to come say a word of encouragement to him today, and I certainly hope you will. Now, I'm going to do something right now that um, I um, uh, apologize to you for doing in a way, but uh, because it, it sort of involves me, and uh, I don't like to do that, but it also involves students, and these students are very, very sweet, and I appreciate their effort. And so, in fact, the matter is, coming up on the 8th of May, we have Mother's Day, as you know. Uh, what a wonderful day. And so, uh, if our film crew back at the back will go ahead, we will see what this is all about.
Davis Patterson. This is Matthew Spate. Um, I just want to thank you for all your hard work and efforts in establishing the scholarships here for students. Uh, when I first got here about two and a half years ago, I just gotten off of back surgery and was unemployed and couldn't afford to uh, go here. But uh, because of your hard work and effort, uh, I was able to receive a scholarship and now I'm able to go here and take care of my son. Hi, I am Wen Rooney and I am studying Master of Music and Conducting. Um, I want to take this time to thank Mrs. Patterson for being such a huge blessing to all of us here at Southwestern. Um, thank you for always pointing our hearts towards Christ and uh, just for teaching us to love the Lord our God with all our being. And uh, thank you for setting an example, a high standard of what God wants us to do and to be the kind of person and woman that God wants us to be. Thank you for always uh, being such an encouragement and inspiration and a blessing to all of us here. And we are so grateful to have a First Lady lead and live by example to love the Lord. And uh, thank you, Mrs. Patterson, for everything. And I want to wish you happy Mother's Day in my dialect. Um, God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day. God bless you. My name is Joy Olubu-Balarulubu. I'm from Nigeria, West Africa. Mr. Patterson has been a, an encouragement to me since I came to Southwestern, even before I knew she was the uh, president's wife. I thank God for Ms. Patterson's life because of her love, her kindness, and generosity towards international students. I've enjoyed scholarship and financial assistance to help me in my ministry and my study. And I pray the Lord will continue to bless Am. I wish you a happy Mother's Day, Miss Patterson, and every blessing that comes with motherhood. My word for you this day is from Psalm 92, verse 14. And they shall bear fruit even in old age, and they shall be fresh and flourish. May the Lord make you flourish all the days of your life. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great Mother's Day. Mrs. Patterson, I have a little word for you from the original scriptures, Eshet Chayil Mi Yimza, and that means a virtuous wife who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Her children and we, your, your students, rise up and call you blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many women do noble things, but you have excelled them all. We students here at Southwestern Theological Seminary, we pray for many more blessed years for you and for your family. Have a happy and blessed Mother's Day. Hello, Mrs. Patterson. My name is Akim Masona, and I am from Zambia in Southern Africa. I am an undergraduate student here at Southwestern, and during my time here, as I'm preparing myself for God's service, I have been blessed to not only receive valuable instruction in my studies and to form wonderful friendships, but most importantly, I have been greatly blessed to 
see firsthand examples of what it means to live a life of generosity and sacrifice for the sake of others. I want to take this opportunity to express my gratitude for your efforts in making it possible for people such as myself to uh, worry less about paying for school and to instead focus on doing well in my studies. If it were not for you, I would not be able to be here this semester and I wouldn't be able to attend the crossover trip uh, to Columbus, Ohio last summer. And um, I wish there was more I could do to show you just how thankful I am to you. But I have picked a verse as a reminder for you that God does not forget those who freely give to others. Proverbs 11 verse 23 to 25 says, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and, who, and one who waters will himself be watered. May God continue to bless you greatly according to his promises. Thank you for all your fundraising efforts and happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Patterson. In Mrs. Patterson, I see a woman passionate about the role that God has called her to be in. She represents a Proverbs 31 woman who lives as an example for others to follow. She walks the talk and she inspires me to be a woman after God's own heart. And on this Mother's Day, I want to wish you, Mrs. Patterson, a very happy Mother's Day. My name is Hannah Roberts and I'm an end of student with a concentration in women's studies here at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. One of the things that I admire most about Mrs. Patterson is her passionate, selfless commitment to her family based on her biblical conditions. Her family truly is her priority, and she doesn't just say these things, but she practically lives them out in her home for all to see. Mrs. Patterson inspires women to be biblical women, uh, to not just sway with the issues of the day, but to take them to scripture and to find solutions for them. I'm very thankful that we have Mrs. Patterson here at seminary to model for us as women how we can honor the Lord in our service day. Happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Patterson, my name is Alberto Gonzalez, and as a Southwestern Seminary student, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. I want to thank you for everything that you do, a lot that goes on behind the scene that we are not even aware of. We appreciate it, we thank you. Uh, we respect you, we thank you for uh, your model and just being an example. And just a few verses in Proverbs 31 that you've been an example in. Um, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Uh, strength and dignity are her clothing. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of her kindness is on her tongue. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And we see an example of a Proverbs 31 woman in you and we thank you, we respect you. So we just want to wish you with the people that you love a happy Mother's Day. Uh, Feliz Día las Madres, la queremos mucho. Un abrazo, big hug.
your mommy. God bless you. Um, um, it's really, it's really hard to find, you know, the words to describe how much uh, I appreciate you, how much I love you, um, how thankful I am to God for your life, and also thank you for all your support in prayer and also for all you have done for each one of us. And I just want to say that for us, you are truly loved, you know, and uh, we are truly thankful to God to your, for your life, for because you are an example, you are a model for all of us. And um, what, I, what I can say, you know, I have been truly honored and blessed to be close to you. And I'm, I'm truly thankful for all the things that you have done. Also thankful because your love for each international student. And thank you for trying to see Christ in us. And uh, thank you for your determination to invest in each of our life to see God's purpose fulfillment in our calling. Uh, so, because you are so special, Mommy, and you are a blessing in our life, on this special day, I wish you a happy Mother's Day. Thank you for being a blessing, and thank you for your life. God bless you, Mommy. Love you. Take away Ida Men's Mother's Day is coming up. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for your mother. Would you please take advantage of the opportunity when it comes up to call your mother, the very least you can do, and say, thank you for giving me life. I pray that you will do that faithfully and uh, for all the other things that she's done for you also. And uh, Ms. Patterson, I assure you, though she didn't know this was going to happen, is thoroughly embarrassed, uh, does appreciate uh, the uh, concern of her children here at the school to make it happen. All right. So thank you so much. And let's stand together. Thank you for your faithfulness in chapel all semester. You have been absolutely super. And uh, I appreciate it. Makes for a very different spirit on campus. Thank you so very much. Let's sing whatever Brother Bulls has chosen. And our preacher will be right down here for you to say a word to him of encouragement. <laughs> Bless you.